This is the Progressive Commentary Hour, and I'd like to welcome you. My theme today is going to be broad-based, but we're going to take a look at what are we doing in our society, how are we approaching our problems. When we think of the greatest generation, my parents' generation, who fought in World War II, who survived the Great Depression, it's fair to say it was largely a very rational society very practical. Uh, almost all of us were raised to be appreciative of what we had, not to be angry at what we didn't have, because a lot of people had very little or nothing. In fact, I know a lot of Americans, millions, traveled across the country just looking for a place to stay, a food to eat, a work to do, and uh, imagine what that would have been like. And then World War II on top of that, 16 years of privations, and yet we survived. We didn't have to do any of that. In fact, our parents sacrificed so that we wouldn't have to. My guest to take us on this journey today is John Papola, P-A-P-O-L-A. He is a um, entrepreneur in the media. Uh, he is he's used to storytelling for the advancement of human flourishing and individual liberty. He's a co-founder and CEO of Emergent Order Foundation down in Austin, Texas, and co-created the Heinz and versus Ehelic and Mrs. versus Marx economic rap videos that have reached tens of millions of students and educators worldwide. John is the host of Dad Saves America video and podcast series. Very enjoyable, very enlightening, very insightful. The program is dedicated to exploring the biggest issues facing our next generation through the lens of heroic fatherhood. Now, before co-founding Emergent Order, he served as a creative executive at various Viacom brands, including MTV, Nickelodeon, and Spike, and a film director and producer. John's feature documentary, At the Fork, debuted to critical acclaim. His, uh, his is the pursuit on Netflix, starring New York Times bestselling author Brooks, and uh, it's about the search for happiness and global prosperity. John's newest film is To My Father, and it premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival this year. For more information, John's uh, website, you can go to eo.foundation.com. Nice to have you with us today, John. Well, Gary, thanks for having me, and thanks for that um um, that lovely introduction, it was, uh, it was too much, <laughs> but I appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. For the past at least 40 years or so, we have seen a gradual decline in reason and simple common sense, pragmatism, for understanding challenges and problems and then creating potentially effective solutions. And this also parallels a rapid rise in, in adverse mental emotional conditions and poor physical health. And these conditions have become so endemic that they're now the new norm. And then our entire educational system, from grammar school to university, including Harvard and Yale and Stanford, 
have suffered, in my opinion, enormously to accommodate the psychological fragility of the younger generations. So from my perspective, seeing the rise of this woke cancel culture is not surprising. So I'd like you to lay out your understanding of how the generations, one out of the other, has digressed from being more rational to embracing critical race theory, wokeism, and frankly, this rather primitive, warring tribalism that has come to characterize today's younger generation. So if you would, please take your time. There's no commercials. The form is yours. Well, Gary, um, I couldn't have said it better myself, frankly. I think uh, I think that there's a lot of different things that have happened here in America and um, and throughout, I'd say, crudely, the Western world. I think especially the English-speaking Western world, with America in, in many ways leading the charge here. And it's a really terrible form of leadership, I believe. Um, so let me first say that I think that a lot of these ideologies that now permeate our universities and and our culture, this sort of, um, I guess, diversity, equity, and inclusion is one catch-all we could use. It's, you know, we live in the age of acronyms where everything has to all be clumped together into a letter combo. So DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, at one level, it's like, who wouldn't want those things? Diversity is, diversity is useful and good in many cases in and of itself, right? Like in biology, we want biodiversity. Monoculture is very fragile. You know, one disease can wipe out an entire species if there's not genetic diversity biologically. So, so you know, diversity of thought, which seems to be the one diversity that tends to get left out of DEI. But diversity of thought is really useful. Like we don't know everything individually or as a society. And so the way we create new knowledge is by having lots of different ideas and having some people who have the ideas that seem totally crazy, like the notion that time might travel, might be experienced differently depending on how fast you're moving. You know, Einstein, you know, he's, that was a crazy sounding idea and it was largely rejected. The notion that there is settled science is itself about as unscientific a statement as you can make. Science is never settled. Science laughs at the notion of things being settled. And so diversity of perspectives and experience, because perspective comes in part from experience, is good. Um, equity, depending on how you define it, can be good. We don't, we want to be treated equitably, which I think for many average people, normal people, typical people walking down the street, hey, do you like equity? It's like they, their first thought might be, well, what do you mean, like stocks and bonds? <laughs> it's like, no, well, like equity as in fairness, fair play, being treated fairly, being treated equitably. Most people would say, yeah, I, I want that. I want to live in an equitable world. Um, you know, so, okay, there we go. Equity could be good. Inclusion. Well, who doesn't want to be included? Who doesn't want to feel like they include others? And so this wordplay has some really good things um, that you could attribute to it, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, 
And you could even say that these are enlightenment principles because tribalism is not diverse and not inclusive and not equitable, right? So, so the old human reality as animals, which we all have in us, to see each other and be very sensitive to our differences and be scared of our differences and be skeptical of our differences. This is as old as single-celled organisms, probably. Like we are on guard for the person that's coming from outside our group and what are they all about and what do they really want and are they coming over the hill to try to plunder our stuff? Because that's like most of human history all around the world. Um, so that's not diversity, equity, or inclusion to be focused on our tribal differences. That's the opposite of that. If you just if you if you came into this world like an alien that understood English but hasn't been soaking in our culture, you would say, well, there's really nothing less diversity, equity, and inclusion than judging people on the basis of their identity. That's the opposite of that. That's like that's like the old tribal barbaric um, you know, stuff that we've been trying our damnedest to escape. But somewhere along the line, that impulse has been turned in turned from a vice into a value. And that desire to be part of a group has become the primary concern. Oh, I want to belong. I need to be part of a group. I need to be made to feel comfortable and safe. And when I say safe, what I really mean is safe from any kind of discomfort at all. This is what the DEI philosophy actually seems to be about, um, which is creating, and that you have all this language, it's just profuse with like code words, like trigger warnings and safe spaces and decolonization this and um, deconstruction and being centered. And again, it's a whole artifice, but it's an artifice built on top of the tribalism that we have been trying as a civilization. Well, actually, I'd say civilization is the result of trying to escape that. So I did this video about the barbarians inside our gates on Dad Saves America. And that's what the heart of this is, is that we have um, we have these innate impulses towards tribalism. And then we have these things, these kind of inventions of civilization that push back against those impulses. And they allow us to live together and to coordinate and to collaborate so we say, hey, you look different than me. You sound different than me. You speak a different language, but you make this thing that I kind of want. I don't know how to make, but I make this other thing that, hey, what do you think? And that's called trade. And so capitalism is this invention of humans to um, bring us together and exchange with each other the fruits of our labor uh, peacefully. And it's one of the tools we've invented as a species to overcome our barbaric tribal Neanderthal nature, where we just say, no, 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 we can only trust what's in our family and anyone outside our family or tribe is not trustworthy. And so we need to make everything ourselves 
and we need to be self-sufficient. This is all old barbaristic nonsense. Um, and, and, and so globalization, liberalism, which is to say the opening up to the world, um, and the different things we've invented along the way from the Magna Carta through to the United States Constitution and the civil rights movement, the notion of being of striving towards colorblindness, which is now considered white supremacist or something crazy. Um, but th that was actually like at the heart of the civil rights movement back when we understood what we were trying to accomplish as a progressing society. Um, that's good. Oh, you look different than me, but I'm striving to not judge you on that because that's old, ancient, barbaric, animalistic behavior to judge you because your skin's different than me. Like who cares what our skin's color, skin color is? Um, the desire to um, have persuasion instead of fighting each other to the death. Oh, instead of us killing each other, let's get into a debate and you lay out your ideas, which I might find horrible and morally offensive, but I'm gonna let you have say what you wanna say. I'm gonna say what I wanna say. And we might not, we probably won't actually convince each other because it's really hard to convince people of a position, especially in like a debate. But the people watching will hear this debate and come to their own conclusions. And that's how science and all forms of human progress and discovery happen is through, this is why this is the first amendment of the constitution. Freedom of speech is fundamental to the entire notion of the Western and I wouldn't even say strictly Western, but the, certainly the enlightenment ethos that has given rise to our modern civilization in which 8 billion people can live on this planet and a larger number of them are living well compared to any other time in all of human history. I mean, the population of the planet's like doubled in the past 30 years. And there, the, the number of people on this planet living lives that would be materially unimaginable 100 years ago exceeds the total population of Earth, just like 30 years ago. And this is this enormous progress that is, that is based entirely on rejecting tribalism and embracing, essentially, I think the best word for it would be liberalism. And this is not liberalism in the sort of American political left-wing sense, it's liberalism in a broader sense that if you go to Europe and you say, I'm a liberal, they will think, they will understand what this means. You know, here you have to sort of say classical liberal. Um, and so what has happened, I think, and you've given me time to be long-winded, so I'm being long-winded. <laughs> but what, so that's my vision of the good, which I wanted to start with. That's the good. The good is liberalism triumphs over tribalism. Liberalism says, no, just because you're different, even if you believe different things, you look differently, um, we can get along, we can even love each other, we can even like get married and we can have a life together and we, we, we will be, and maybe we won't, maybe we won't like each other at all, but we can live as neighbors and be okay and not kill each other like the Hatfields and the McCoys or every other tribal barbaric battle that's happened throughout all human history on every single continent and creed forever. We're going to try to get past that. And that worked so well. And this is something that I've only really come to appreciate in the past couple of years. And it's a big part of why I do Dad Saves America. That's worked so well to lift human humans, especially in the rich world. Some people call it the weird world, like the Western industrialized, educated, 
I forget the R and D. Democratic is the D. R is something. Um, but that world, that weird world we live in, we have now moved past what our biological hardwiring can deal with in, in terms of our comfort, in terms of the complexity of our lives, in terms of the amount of information that we are hit with every day. And this has been supercharged with the advent of the internet and these screens like you or I are communicating on, which is one of the benefits of this. But the cost is like my tr sort of reptilian, tribal, barbaric brain thinks we're in the same room together because this is how powerful and, and weird our technology is. It, it really can play tricks with our sort of old school hardware. The software is way outstripped the hardware for human society. And so this lays the groundwork for where, how we've gone off track. We've gotten very, very comfortable, which means as a people, especially in the United States, which is still, the, I mean, the richest large scale country in the world, but per capita. For example, I, I travel to Italy somewhat regularly these, these days, and Italy is literally half the per capita income of the United States. Like people don't really appreciate just how much wealthier we are as a country than everywhere else. They go to they go to Paris on vacation. They think, oh, this is great. It's like you need to live there a little longer to see how much wealthier Americans are on average. Um, we coddle our kids because we can afford to, and because we have fewer of them. Because that's this quirk. Like you get richer and you have fewer kids because it's just a thing that turns out to be the way humans tend to operate. Um, you know, because we had a lot of kids when they half of them would die. So we're kind of hardwired to have some relationship there between our comfort and the amount of kids we have. Um, we have fewer kids. We coddle them more. We as parents actually spend more time on average with our kids than our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation did. So people think, oh, two-parent households, everybody's working so hard. We spend, as a society, on average, something like eight hours more, It's like a week at least, with our kids than our parents or grandparents did. And so we have cleared the path, you know, this term snowplow parenting. We've cleared the path for our kids. They live lives, which in a sense sound great, but without a lot of friction. Not everybody. There's lots of poor kids in America. There's lots of people struggling. I don't, I'm not trying to downplay that. But relative to any time in history or almost anywhere else on earth, our kids are doing freaking great. They have great lives. They encounter no resistance. Oh my gosh, this test was hard. That's their resistance. And yet they're miserable. And yet their mental health is collapsing, especially for girls. But boys are actually, boys on the stats are doing way worse than girls. But girls, as a, as in terms of change over time, have really gotten hit hard by Instagram and social media and all this other nonsense that's kind of hitting them all the time. Well, why is that? Like, why is it that, like, I'm a Gen Xer. I didn't have screen stuff when I was growing up, aside from, like, an Atari 2600. Well, but, like, it turns out that stuff that was hard, you know, having to wait for things when you wanted something, or, um, you know, not having comfort, or or having to do, you know, the old walk through the snow to get to school type of, type of story. All of that had a benefit as well as a cost. It was a cost. Oh, I want this toy. I got to wait till Christmas. That's a cost. Turns out learning how to wait is actually a benefit. <laughs> it develops, you know, a really important skill for success. One of the most important ones of all, which is delayed gratification. Um, you know, having to deal with like 
being in a bigger family where your brothers and sisters are kind of beating each other up and you're going to school and you're kind of getting bullied. Bullying is bad. Like intense, repeated harassment is not acceptable. But a certain amount of toughening is really, really helpful to develop your sense that you can survive adversity. And that's all been stripped away. So the anti-bullying movement is part of this general move to strip every single friction in our kids' lives away. And what do you know? They're, they are human beings, they're biological creatures, and just like an immune system, if you don't um, test it and try it, it doesn't develop. It is a muscle that atrophies. And so our kids' psychology has atrophied in the absence of practice with adversity, and they are worse off for it. A perfect point of comparison, which is I'm going to be talking about more in a video that we're working on right now, is one of the most successful immigrant groups in this country are Nigerian immigrants. I had this TV personality, Akbar um, Baja Biamila, on our show. Nigerian immigrant, first-generation parents, Christian and Muslim parents. Hardcore, in a sense, conservative values, if you really want to say, like, get educated, work hard, stay on the straight and narrow kind of stuff. Small C conservative parents. Grew up in the 90s in South Central Los Angeles. The Rodney King riots were happening all around him. He succeeded wildly. He succeeded wildly because he's a, a, a good person that's got his, kept his nose clean and knows how to work hard at things and has conscientiousness. His parents were able to provide him with that platform, even growing up in Compton in the 90s when the Rodney King riots were taking place as a Nigerian immigrant. So when we hear these stories, so so what do I how do I put a bow on this and, and open it up? Because I've really exploited your open platform now at this point. So we have these kids that live these basically Victorian lives. Um you know, where our, our bottom 10% live better than the top 1% of the planet in general. Um, then religion has collapsed in this country. Fatherhood, we have a fatherhood crisis in this country where one in four American kids are being raised without a biological step or adoptive father. And so they have this material plenty, this lack of practice with adversity on one level, but then they don't have strong, uh, the family structure that is the most socially scientifically studied, proven this works, the ultimate privilege is to have mom and dad in your home as a kid, period. Not up, not really up for debate, although everything's always up for debate because that's the way science works. Um, those things have gone down. And so you have the rise of this anxious generation, this sense of this purpose void. And what am I here for? And I'm comfortable, but I'm miserable. And so into this void comes these utopian ideologies that turn out to really just be the old retrograde barbaric nonsense of tribalism reconstituted as a, a new kind of idol worship, complete in some cases with child sacrifice, as, as the case with the trans movement. I know that's a bombastic thing to say, but so be it. Um, and, and, and so that's what's gripped our kids that's how we could have our elite institutions become so off the rails because there's this utopian ideology that's meeting up 
with purpose-starved, religion-starved, dad-starved, anxious kids that are looking to fill those voids somehow. And, and frankly, we have a kind of predator class among our academic and activist elites who see these kids who are struggling as useful idiots in their war to remake the civilization. And the rest of us have been asleep at the wheel, frankly, lulled into a sense that we're in, you know, this economist Francis Fukuyama said the end of history. Oh, the, you know, the Soviet Union fell, the wall came down. We've arrived at the end of history. You know, liberal democratic capitalism is the global order. We, we, you know, there's this other term that people that are econ-minded used to refer to the time, basically, from like the 1980s into the, you know, 2000, the great moderation. Oh, we're in this moderating time. We figured it all out. Only it turns out we sort of lulled ourselves into complacency and let barbarians take, you know, brainwash our kids with nonsense and instill in them um, like this worship of the idol of identity because that's what can make them feel special is what I am, what I am, not who I am, what I am. And I stand in opposition to that and in favor of the values that animated the founders and Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King and Thomas Sowell and all these great, frankly, liberal thinkers who say, no, 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 we are all equal in our human dignity and what we make of our life is up to us. And if you want to succeed, you need to want to succeed. And you need to believe that you can. And this victimhood tribal cult has the opposite vision, which for quirky reasons of our human nature is appealing when you're anxious and depressed and having the trouble that so many of our kids have. So there it is, my grand theory of everything. Very well said and very comprehensive. Um, somewhat related, some of the things you said, to what you shared is a breakdown of intellectual discourse, an honest debate. Instead, what we witness in classrooms and college campuses, and I've been a, I've been a, a teacher in colleges and universities, Fairleigh Dickens University, Pratt Institute, etc., and across the social media is an eruption of crass, immature emotions that is almost ideological fundamentalism of a pseudo-religious kind, uh, its own type of modern-day cultism. And I'm going to ask you to account for this breakdown in intellectual discourse, but I want to take you for a moment to open a few doors in my own past to show you a little different perspective. Let's go back to 1972. At that time, I was asked, would I have a meeting with all the so-called holistic or alternative or complementary doctors in the New York area? There were about 53 of them. And they all came from regular orthodox medical backgrounds. But what they found is that their orthodox treatments were not enough to bring their patients to a state of wellness that they believed the patients deserved. And therefore, they would try something like maybe dietary changes, maybe doing some stress management techniques. At that time, it was just yoga. And then later, it was transcendental meditation. Anyhow, we had a meeting at my office, and they all told us, you know, told me, um, what can we do to at least allow ourselves as individuals and as a group to practice without being attacked by the 
state medical boards, by the AMA and uh, other agencies. Literally, every single person in that room had been given warnings or was under attack by authorities. For doing what? And see how this coincides with today. By not following accepted current standards of science. Now, I actually helped a doctor, Dr. James Privatera in California, who supported chemotherapy, radiation, and and, uh, surgery for cancer. But what he found was important in his practice is helping a person who had gone through the orthodox therapies to regain their immune system through healthy diet and lifestyle changes. That's all. And he had hundreds of patients that were getting better. So what happens is they arrest him. They find him guilty of not practicing the Acceptable Practice Act. And he was sent to hard time in prison. His wife came to see me. Uh, Governor Brown was governor at that time, Jerry Brown's father, and we managed to get him out of prison. Now, I then suggested to them, you have to go on the offensive because right now there's a monopoly in medicine, a monopoly in healthcare. In fact, there's a monopoly in everything. We're just not paying attention to it. There's a, a desire to have conformity. So there's not really debate as it should be. Yes, we had William F. Buckley debating James Baldwin in a classic discussion. It was civil, but it was really insightful. In fact, Buckley held forth every week debating John Kenneth Galbraith and a lot of other people. We needed that. We don't have that today. You mentioned a freedom of speech, that it's inalienable. It's our first, uh, it's our first uh, law of the land that allows us to say, even if someone disagrees with us, even if it's offensive, it allows us to say our mind. And yet today, not only if you don't say the right words, can you be criticized and attacked for hate speech, and hate speech could be anything that an opposite group feels is uncomfortable for them to hear. I'm sure you're familiar with the psychologist. He's a brilliant man, uh, Jonathan Haidt, right? Oh, yeah. His, his, his writings, I know Jonathan, and I've interviewed him several times, and his work has a big impact on the way I think about things. Well, good, because Jonathan, in one of his most recent interviews, said that he no longer, no longer uses humor, no longer invites guests, no longer shows documentary or film clips out of fear that one of the students or more may find something aggressive and egregious and take a Title IX on him, so suddenly he's under investigation. And you do that a couple times and realize you could lose your position of teaching, you could be censured, or you could be losing your, uh, you can lose your position at the university. So, I said, you have to stop being defensive and kind of hiding your practices because you're doing good work. And instead, take a look behind the scenes. What's really motivating this idea that there's only one truth? There's no universal truth. There's one truth. Martin Luther King, the very people you mentioned, W.D. Du Bois and uh, others, uh, Frederick Douglass, they believed in universal truths, that what is true should be true for everyone around the world. If you care about children, you should care about all children. You should care about the children in Yemen. You should care about the children in Ukraine, the children in, in Gaza. You should care about the poor in Mississippi, not just your children. That's an individual truth, and it doesn't comport with universal values. So as you said, there should be a universal sense of liberalism, meaning that all of us should have the same opportunities and should have the opportunity 
Even if we fail at something, we should have the opportunity to try at something. So here's what happened. One day, I get a, uh, an envelope that came to my apartment. I didn't know who it was from. I opened it up, and there were documents from the AMA. And it turns out these were secret documents that no one knew that there was a secret department of investigations in the belly of the AMA and that their whole intent was to, quote, isolate, attack, and destroy, and wither on the dine, chiropractic, but also homeopathy, naturopathy, anything that was alternative that challenged the, the one kind of medicine, one kind of health care, one kind of medical procedures was to be uh, destroyed. And then I started getting more and more of these documents till I had a flood of documents, so many that I wrote a series of articles. Uh, in fact, I wrote them in Caveat Emptor, where Ralph Nader and I both published in the same journal at the same time, early 70s. Well, that led to a lawsuit against the AMA and the 12 largest medical organizations in America. That led to uh, a ruling and went clear up to the Supreme Court that chiropractic could no longer be considered, quote, an unscientific cult, hmm. and therefore denied in, in, in public hospitals, denied in uh, uh, referral. In fact, it was a part of the tenet of the AMA that you could not accept a patient from a chiropractor, nor could you recommend a patient to chiropractor because it was just an unscientific cult. And indeed, it was dying. It was at the end. And because of that lawsuit, now for the first time, chiropractic was allowed to be what it is, a legitimate healing modality. And then I went on from that. I was asked by the Institute of, of the uh, New York Institute of Technology to write a curriculum for a master's program because they had all the technical sciences, but they didn't have any of the nutrition health sciences. So I wrote the curriculum and I, I, uh, at the master's level, and it was accredited. And it became the first master's accredited program in public health nutrition, and I also taught it. And I did the same thing for chiropractic. As a result, the entire chiropractic profession could now go beyond supplication to health and nutrition, healthy diet, exercise, stress management, simple things. But before, they couldn't do it. Now they could. So it saved the uh, entire profession of chiropractic. Whatever you may think of it, it is a legitimate profession. It does work. And I supported the, showed the studies from the peer-reviewed literature that it does. Now, we got a law passed in New York State. It took five years so that it was a Freedom of Practice Act. It was first in the United States. It was then adopted in all the states. So if you had uh, informed consent with a doctor, you could choose the therapy that you wanted. And that doctor wouldn't end up being attacked and go to jail for it. But it also opened it up that maybe there's other ways of approaching public health. Mm -hmm. Do you remember when I was growing up, at least, and when at the beginning of your growing up, no woman had ever run a marathon because it was considered, quote, unscientific because a woman's body couldn't withstand the rigors of a marathon. In fact, the first woman to run the Boston Marathon at the very end was tackled by the director of the marathon, even though she had disguised herself with running with two male companions. They finally got her, threw him off, and she was able to finish it. Now the majority of people running marathons are women because their body is actually more physiological capable of doing that. I've written over 300 original investigative reports, major wow. ones. And I, one of my reports on the alternative cancer therapy of Dr. Stanislaw Brzezinski won two Emmys on, on, um, on CBS. 
uh, ABC, excuse me, and also one of my features on Dr. Lawrence Burton was on 60 Minutes. And, uh, and I published, I don't know, around a thousand articles, a lot in peer review journals, etc. And my point is this, why is it that in a society that prides itself in the uniqueness of its freedoms that you can find nowhere else in the world for everyone, that we are now shrinking those freedoms down to those individuals like Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, Council on Foreign Relations, uh, the Atlantic Council, groups of individuals, none of them elected by the American public. We don't even know who they are. Uh, and they become law, and they become what dictates what we can and cannot do. And they're doing this at every level in every field. And I'm challenging that to the degree I can by showing quality peer-reviewed literature. So, for example, yesterday, and this is my last comment, yesterday, to enhance the idea that we should have open and honest and civil debate, be impassioned, but don't be crude, rude, vulgar. You don't have to attack someone to challenge their ideas. And I had, you're familiar with Rupert Sheldrake, correct? I'm not, but... That's okay. He's one of the greatest uh, scientific philosophers on the planet. And then we also had really one of the leading skeptics on. Both made very good arguments. It would be a toss-up of which one actually won. And one was saying that if science can't prove it, it's not real. It may be promising. It may be a good hypothesis. You may believe in it. But and this one was saying, if we can't prove it, then don't believe it. Now, that said, uh, Sheldrake was taking the opposite opinion. What neither of them knew was that in 1977, I published the first article in the United States as a senior research fellow, or as a research fellow, later become senior research fellow for 36 years at the Institute of Applied Biology, a highly respected scientific research center. And I was the strange guy up on the third floor where I didn't do cancer research. I researched how we can live a longer and healthier life. But I also believe that there was such a thing as energy and the quality of the energy you share with another person directly can impact a person's life well-being. And I use simple examples like a mother all over the world. I don't care where you were at and what time in history, you would uh, kiss your baby, you would hold your baby to the breast, uh, you would nurture that baby. You also see that in primates as well. And But there had to be something more. If you look in the eyes of someone you love, someone you adore, there's an energy that transfers. You share it. You harmonize it. And the more harmonizing your energy is, the healthier you become. You're more likely to make a healthy choice if you're harmonizing a healthy energy. You're more likely to make an unhealthy choice if you're harmonizing a common addictive energy. And our whole society today is suffering from various types of addiction. Even if you're very successful, if you go for it, if you if you get to the top of your profession, whatever that may be, then I ask you, turn around and look, see what you left out. You've got the success, you've got the money, you've got the fame, you've got the power in your field, you're acknowledged, you're deferred to. But what about your wife, your husband, your children, your pet, your friends, your hobbies, your own health, your own needs? Did you sacrifice those to get ahead? Almost always the answer is yes. So wouldn't it make sense, instead of getting on this mythical ladder to achieve something that maybe we started to look at, at what does our life mean in any given moment? Do I need more in order to be happy? 
Is happiness out there? Is it a goal I have to reach right now? I'm not happy. My process is not a happy process. It's sacrificing. But a lot of Americans today, the very people you're referring to, we don't take a look behind the scenes. We don't look to see who are these people? What are they about? How is it that these people with all their wealth are not sharing that wealth with the very people who made them rich to begin with, their workers, their employees? Why is this all about their mansions and their private jets? So I see addiction everywhere. It's just we don't call it addiction. I see addiction in the idea that you have to be on social media. And if you don't have a certain amount of likes on social media, you're not acceptable. I see addiction within the feminist movement. By the way, I, co I, I was the chief author of the largest book ever written on feminist philosophy for women only, which was premiered on PBS with one of the great and really humanistic feminists, uh, Barbara Seaman. She and I worked together for years. And I refused to accept, and I told her many times, don't introduce me to people who only have the, uh, the statement that men are the problem and women are the solution. And then that, that didn't work because for decades we've just had the denigration of men. Anything that represents an actual masculine quality is denigrated. What do you think that does to the young boys or girls? Well, we, we, we've and look seen at, it and, firsthand. Right. You, 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 you mentioned it. That's why I say you, you hit on so many points. You opened so many doors in your, your comments. <laughs> and good for you for doing that, and good for your audience for knowing that they can tune in and hear you open these up. So what we have to understand is don't just look at your day-to-day -day and what makes you happy or sad. Why don't we take a look at what is behind all these different movements? Who's benefiting? We never heard of BlackRock. We never heard of State Street, Berkshire Hathaway, uh, Fidelity. Uh, we never heard of these uh, uh, companies that control up to $50 trillion and the, and, and the shares, of, uh, shares of stock they own in companies, which gets them on the board of directors, which makes them hidden policymakers. We never knew any of this. So a kid wakes up this morning and could be eating the very food that's going to cause him diabetes, adult diabetes in a six-year-old, or heart disease in a nine-year-old. And we don't we don't question this. We're not questioning the if we're not questioning the outcome of all of our public and private choices. We're only questioning the effort. And everybody can say, oh, I'm making a good effort. Really? Then why is it we have functional literates graduating from college? Why do we have people who believe they should get a job because of their equity participation, not their qualifications? Not, not whether or not they deserved it. Could you address any of these points? Any ones oh I just mentioned, please take it on. <laughs> Gary, I think what we are playing is, is a, a game of tennis in which each of us hits 300 tennis balls at the other. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, I want to commend you on that, on, on, on your career. I didn't come into this conversation knowing those things, and it's really terrific and, and heroic, frankly. So, and I mean that honestly. So I'll, I'll, I'll see how, how much I can get through because I'm, I'm processing so much of what you just said. So one thing you should know about me is that I come from a family of traditional doctors. My dad is an otolaryngologist, an MD. Both of his parents, his mother and his stepmother were both doctors. It's sort of a classic, I'm 100% Italian. So, you know, Italian immigrant type families, you want to be a doctor. It's like, you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer if you're a you know, like a South Philly kid. That's the aspiration, right? Um, so I actually have gone on my own journey of opening up my mind to alternative medicine. 
And you may have seen, you know, my wife and I, and actually my wife played a very important role in this, Lisa. We actually made a movie about the way animals are raised for food through the moral lens called At the Fork, uh, together with Holt, with our um, our good friend, John Mackey, um, Holt, uh, Holt, the founder of Whole Foods, Whole Foods Market. And so um, I came from a place where my dad, speaking of chiropractics, was like, no, chiropractics is, is quackery. And and um, that's not real medicine to a place where my sister uh, has actually been. She had a series of um, accidents that left her with a lot of pain. And, and she was like, no, 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 dad, you're wrong on this. I got a lot of help from from chiro from my chiropractor. And my wife is the same way. She's been in a series of car accidents over her life and her chiropractor has has really helped her. I've actually never been to a chiropractor, but my mind has opened here. And I think that um, one of the things that's happening is, and it's really, it, there's a lot of different ways of analyzing this that feel like they get to the root. I don't think there's any one, but, but, but one, of, one of the many, I think, foundational problems we have, and this medicine, your medicine story, and the story of all of the medical and, and, and the responses to COVID and all and, and the 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 just systemic lying and and trickery and censorship that's come out of our medical industrial complex. It's rooted in the appeal to authority. Right? It's it's rooted on the opposite of science, actually, because there's nothing scientific about authority. You having a PhD at the end of your name does not make you correct on its face. When someone, when a college student says, well, what's your degree in as a response to your to your to the point of view you put forward? The response that is not actually legitimate argument. That's not science. That's anti-science. And and the history of medicine the history of everything it is a human challenge is we don't like when people move our cheese right so we we it's hard to accomplish things it's hard to establish your domain in which you have some amount of success and you don't want it moved or changed so when along comes an upstart um and challenges it it's only natural to say, I don't believe that, you're wrong, and not just you're wrong, but I'm going to try to stop you. And this is, again, this is going back, this is reverting back to our, our barbaric tribalism. But, but part of that barbaric tribalism is the appeal to the elder as the authority, as the lawgiver. And science and the enlightenment values say, no, you can't do that. That's not science. That's not illegitimate because we do that in this other domain called religion. And that's okay. So I'm Catholic. I have no problem making leaps of faith as a Catholic. But that is religion. That is not science. That is not that you could say it is a pursuit of the highest possible truth. It is a truth, though, that requires a leap of faith. In the domain of will this medicine be be better for you or not? Will this protocol help you live a better life with more flourishing and more 
more vitality um, or not, those are not questions of faith. Those are questions of science. And the only mechanism is the one that you've, sounds like you've spent your life doing, which is continual trial and error without any appeal to authority ever, because there is no final authority. There is no settled science. Anyone that says those things in the material domain is a scam artist and a liar, and they're trying to manipulate you and push their religion on you. This is true in the climate debate. It is true. It is most horrific in, in the issue of race relations, where we now have this thing where you you can't we, we, we can't pursue truth together. I have my truth, but my truth is because of the amount of melanin in my skin. And that's different than your truth because your truth is defined by things that I can never know. I mean, that's such a rejection of empathy, but it is an appeal to authority. It's a weird one because it's like we are own, we are each our own authority on the basis of what you can tell from me from across the room, but it is an appeal to authority. And that's, that's we, and I think like our structures, we, we live in this age that's really exciting, right? Because we can have this conversation and in, in many, many, many respects, we are moving into a new age, thanks to the internet, where we can challenge authority in ways that were never possible in the 20th century, where there were only three broadcast networks and there was no such thing as leaving a like or a comment. <laughs> there was no such thing as user reviews of a product that you could see how many people liked it or not. There was just the authority, the broadcaster, the, the, the authoritarians. It was really, the 20th century was the authoritarian age. And now we're grappling, and this is my optimism, we're grappling with a post-authoritarian age. And I think, you know, you look at even the Hippocratic Oath, right? Which I'm sure you're very familiar with. Oh yes, there's do no harm, great. We've got a lot of problems with the do no with with violations of do no harm in medicine today along a lot of dimensions, but other parts of the Hippocratic Oath were just plain old guild protectionism and appeals to authority to so that so that doctors would be pr protected from competition. I, I'm fundamentally very much a libertarian, and the reason I am the reason I don't believe in government really doing much of anything at all is because it is a monopoly of force. And so what it does is it creates an authority target. And so all of these forces you're talking about are magnified in their corruption by the ability of a single target, whether it's the FDA or the CDC or the World Health Organization. But these, these entities that are imbued with legal authority that actually strip you of your license or put you in jail, like these stories you told, that's unacceptable. That is anti-scientific. It is barbaric nonsense. If you've got a, if you've got a, if you've built a better mousetrap, then you you should be allowed to to put it out there in the world and let it see if it see if it actually does a better job or not. And if people want it, they'll walk in the door. And if they like it, they'll keep coming back. And if they don't, they'll walk out the door, and you'll be out of business real quick. So I'm a big believer in the power of this is why our organization is called emergent order, because it's it's a fundamentally an organic evolutionary process that is against it has no appeal to authority. It is that order, progress, flourishing, the human body, 
our language. These are things that emerge through this constant trial and error of our cells and our, and our habits and our society. It, it, having some wannabe mommy or daddy figure tell us all what to do is childish. And, and that's what, that's what me medicine is just shot through with that kind of paternalism, that kind of, you can't handle the truth authoritarian mindset. You can't have your medical records unless you jump through hoops to get them because you can't handle the truth. I will say this, it's not entirely wrong. The truth in these complex situations is hard. We and we are prone to our own confirmation biases, and there's lots of nonsense out there. And there's and it's very, like we are living through a really difficult time as as authority collapses, trust is collapsing with it, and it's really hard at the individual level to know well what is the truth. The truth givers have all been proven to be lying charlatans who basically want to empower themselves and screw us over. But that doesn't give me an answer of where to turn to for truth. And and the, the 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 chiropractor might be tremendous for my back, but then when he starts to make claims about healing my ear infections and otitis media, well, maybe he's getting out past his skis now. And how do I know that? And so when my dad was like, no, chiropractors are BS, that was because he went to one and they claimed that he could cure an ear infection and my dad's an ear, nose, and throat surgeon. And he was like, well, I think that's 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 nonsense. And my dad, I, I can't tell whether my dad was right or wrong on that, but let's assume for a moment that my dad was right. That's that tension there, right? You've got two different modalities in competition with each other. And we and I think it's just uncomfortable to come to terms with the fact that that's that's what we've got to work with. The tension in the pursuit of truth. That's it. There's no final authority. There's no final lawgiver. Giver. We are adults now. Mommy and daddy aren't going to resolve the dispute. And our kids are now turning 26, 30, 35, 40, wanting mommy and daddy to solve things for them. John well said. Can we pick this really up? And, and John... I would like to think of this as just our first conversation leading into the next one when you're available in the near future because we have a lot more to share together. Well, Gary, I really appreciate taking the time and boy, oh boy, could we go a long ways together, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward to it. For all of our audience, John Papola, P-A-P-O-L-L-A, -L -L you can go to his uh, show and uh, download it. Uh, go to John. Uh, John's is eq uh, found dot foundation dot com. Eo is dot foundation. And also, yeah. um, the best place to catch all our latest stuff is if you go to youtube dot com slash Dad Saves America. You'll find our our, our podcast and our and my um, video essays that we've been releasing. Excellent. Until our next conversation, John, thank you very much for being with us. And to our audience, thank you. We're now streaming again, so you can watch this and share it with other people as well. Thank you very much, and have a nice day, everyone.
there's too many of you to cry Brother, brother, brother There's far too many of you die You know 